please be aware, this podcast may contain discussions of drugs, which some may find offensive. Hello, Chris Evans here. Thank you so much for downloading this special edition of the Best of the Breakfast Show podcast with Sky from Virgin Radio. Now, this really is one to behold. Academy Award-winning writer and director Oliver Stone's fascinating memoir, Chasing the Light, is out now. And he spoke to us live from his home in LA a few weeks ago before we started our show at 6.30 in the morning. He was incredibly candid and talked about his drug addiction, his influences and his failures. So get ready, buckle up, I'll throw you a rope because you are going in for the unedited version Version, full and exclusive. Here we go. Our chat with the one and only Oliver Stone. Oliver, your book is a ride. I couldn't put it down. I didn't ask my wife, ask my kids. Um, it was unbelievable. Essentially, it's it's your story via three of your movies, Midnight Express, Salvador and uh, Platoon. Um, looking back now, which was hardest to make the film Platoon in the jungle about Vietnam or to actually fight in the jungle in the Vietnam War? <laughs> Different different uh, journeys you know completely different but unfortunately you left out you mentioned successful films you left out the failures and uh, you have to realize that a lot of the book is about failure and not getting to your dream and uh, the inverse of success is sometimes bitterness and uh, hardship so there's a lot of that in the book. Did you notice uh, when you read it, Chris? Oh, well, I did, but the point is that I'm a very positive person, and I also I faced I adversity, so I get all that. But the energy yeah. and the fight in getting two films and getting through your nadirs um, yeah. left me breathless. I mean, I could literally, you know, I was exhausted. Re so I don't make films. I'm in radio. It's the opposite medium. You know, it's very short form. It's yeah. very of the now. And, and the whole, the effort, the burden, the weight, the gravity of just getting a film off the ground, the first few meetings, and then, you know, you, you get to... Yeah. You get to New Mexico and you, and you get to the jungle and you get all these people around you and you get really famous actors who are just being complete pains in the arse. And I'm like, well, how do you even... How do you, you're 74 now? 74 are you now, Oliver? Yeah, almost. Yeah. 74, you know, you must be exhausted. Uh, at times I was, yes. And, you know, I, I haven't made a feature film since 19, 2016 uh, Snowden movie. So I've been doing documentaries... Uh, two of them I'm finishing up now, and I wrote this book that you read, and I did a lot of work on it for about two and a half years, off and on, full time though at times. Oh, it was really a great thing to relive a feeling of, re you know, it went so fast, Chris. The time when you make when you get in the film, one film after the other, and then when you get hot, you get hot, and you're throwing dice in a casino. It's like you don't stop to think and you don't stop to enjoy it sometimes. So it's a great chance later in life just to lit, sit back and uh, remember and reappreciate the times that you had there. Yeah. It was a wonderful experience. I enjoyed writing it. It's so true. And, you know, if I could go back in time, I'd love to be a teenager in the 60s because I think it would be such a groove. But reading your book, your experience in the 60s, it was quite a serious experience. And you seem to try and then make up for your lost 60s in the 70s. Would that be a, any kind of astute yeah. observation? Yes, it is. I mean, it's a story about New York life. My mother and my father, I was an only child. And their divorce and how it affected me deeply because it broke apart our family and how after the age of 16 it was I was pretty much on my own sort of an adult and went to Vietnam the first time as a teacher and then in the Mercer Marine it was a tremendous adventure and I came back and I wrote a book about it and I wanted the book to be published 
it wasn't published. It was rejected, and uh, I went back to school to Yale, and then uh, couldn't 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 get on. I had no place in this world anymore. I felt most comfortable somehow in the Far East, and I went back as a soldier, full out. I wanted to be just anonymous, anonymous in the field, just a private first class. I wanted to find to the bottom of the barrel, and I did in making platoon. Well, living platoon, you asked what was harder, living it at different times of my life. I wrote, I got out at 22. I survived and was numb, alienated, didn't really think, wasn't obsessed with it by any means. I wanted to, I didn't know what I was. I was on another journey, another world, numb from the war. And uh, it took me several years, to a year to get back into film school and then gradually found my way through writing, through screenwriting, back to some kind of sanity, some kind of decency in civilization, and uh, wrote 12 screenplays in that period, as well as drove a taxi, odd jobs here and there, advertising. Gosh, I did everything I could in New York. But eventually the light came through in uh, when Midnight Express, oh, I wrote Platoon in 10 years after the war, eight years after the war, and that was a script that was very hot, they liked it, and I ended up in Hollywood for the first time, living there. And I, from that came the Midnight Express break, which was in England, of all things. I made the film. They made the film out of England, and I wrote it there. For, you for, see a Midnight Express? Yeah, God, I love it. For us Brits, um, Oliver, uh, tell us about your the flat in Kensington, and then and then going to work what? every day in Wardour Street in Soho, and trying to just get some kind of smile or nod of approval from Alan Parker. That's tough. Uh, that's tough. He's a tough guy, but uh, uh, you know, he I admire him. He's an honest man, and he felt the way he did, and he got his objective. He got his movie. And uh, like all directors, very sometimes they're cold people, but uh, sometimes they're warm people. But, uh, it, you know, he was an honest man. And when he read the script, he said, I really like it. He got it. I mean, sometimes a director can be devious. He wasn't devious about it. Uh, I, loved it. I loved London. It was my first time uh, living there. And it was just to walk every day from, as you say, Kensington down to Warner Street was a delight if you had the time. I thought it was so beautiful, the shops, the whole culture, the... The, the pub hours, of course, I could have, I could have passed on. Uh, I thought they were kind of ridiculous, but I had a ball in England. And I, and, I didn't um, know about your, I didn't know about the cocaine or the quaaludes. I didn't know about the, the story you tell about the afternoon of the, of the Golden Globes and that first sort of high-profile yeah. acceptance speech for, for Midnight Express. I didn't know whether to laugh, cry, or hide under the duvet when I was reading it. I mean, <laughs> how does it feel now when you reflect back on having written about it? You got to laugh, you know. You, I mean, you see your ups and downs in life, uh, and you you ride it, you know, like a like a surfboard. It's it, it, you, you can't have any ups without having some downs. So that was a particularly down moment. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, that was the problem. I mean, I was so. Uh, it does go to your head, whatever you say, no matter how much you you think you're down to earth. It does go to your head. Yeah. The drugs at that time in the late 70s in Hollywood were, were pretty much around, you know. There was a lot of people from the 70s doing it. And uh, I fell into the trap and I was addicted for a while. And I paid a price. I paid a price. Eventually I got out. I, I wrote my way out of it, you know. I, I put it this way. I experienced the Scarface research on cocaine 
But when I wrote the script, after the research, I went cold turkey in, in Paris. I moved to Paris and I wrote it out of France because my mother was French and because France brings out the things in me. Uh, and I was around people who did not do the, the, the drugs that they were doing in Los Angeles. So I got out of it. I never was addicted to it again. But you went back to it again because that was like a three-month window, a three-month break, wasn't it? And and what what did you know when you were taking loads of coke uh, with your your wife and you were thinking about about Scarface? What what experiences from your using did you feed into that mentality? That, 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 oh, that, that, are you kidding? I, yeah, I think the film speaks to the gangster mentality, right? And I think I I know that all uh, it's. That film was a inside the park home run in the sense that it was appreciated by those who knew when it came out. Uh, it was very much reviled in many ways by the, call it the Puritans, reviled as a horrible movie. And it was also loved by the street people, a lot of street people. And uh, I knew that I still, years later, wherever I go, people, I get very excited if they hear I wrote Scarface. They think, you know, I get free champagne from gangsters. I sit in places in nightclubs in Cambodia or Egypt or, or uh, anywhere in Europe. Even in people really appreciate They buy you drinks. They think they want to hear about Scarface. It's unbelievable. I've enjoyed it. And also, remember, there's a scene I end up in Salvador with the arena party, the fascist death, death squad yep. scene. And I, I get into this really hardcore unit. They're killers, major killers down in Salvador during the Civil War. And I get in on the basis of Scarface, mucho cliente, uh, big balls, you know. Yeah, because they, they start to it. repeat the lines back to you from Scarface, which yeah. only helped at the time. Uh, what your, this review of Salvador that you mentioned in your book um, from Pauline Kale in The New Yorker, Stone writes and directs as if someone had put a gun to the back of his neck and yelled, go, and didn't take it away until he'd finished. Is that how it was? Absolutely correct. And that's a very insightful thing. Salvador was the most chaotic, most difficult, impossible film to get made. One day we had the money, one day it was gone. It was up and down all the way. It was exciting. Everything went wrong that could go wrong on a movie. I learned an enormous amount, but I loved that movie and I was in control of it. I never was out of control of it. In other words, my previous experiences, I had done two horror films. I had lost control of them to some degree. This was important. Salvador was my baby and it was the first one that broke through. And both uh, Salvador and Platoon both financed back-to-back by John Daly, a British, uh, a Londoner, an East Londoner, a very kind and crazy man uh, with a Cockney accent. I loved him, and uh, he made both films happen. He stuck with By Me, and his loyalty was, his father had been a boxer and had taken in a lot of outcasts, and he had that in generosity in him from the beginning. Uh, he was wonderful to, do, to work with, made those films possible. They were made for nothing. They were made for nothing. And they, I, that story that happened to me, to go from Salvador to Platoon, is an amazing, it's a miracle thing that happened. Let's go to Tennessee Williams, another quote from the book. You say, um, after Platoon, uh, you began to understand that Tennessee Williams, uh, what Tennessee Williams meant when he complained that comfort, not poverty, was the wolf at the door. How's that thought yeah. sitting with you nowadays? Oh, I've been through all that. Uh, I, I still live, I live by my own standards. I'm, I, I have a comfortable life, but it's, I would say, by, like my father, I, I don't indulge in too much, you know, and I try to keep it simple and, and not to know, not to live the grand life, which is fun. My mother was certainly represented it to me. And I've, had, I've seen a lot of grand life, and I love it. 
I like to drop in and out if possible, but uh, <laughs> I don't want to stay there. So your mum and dad, um, they couldn't have, well, they could have been more different, but it would have been difficult. Um, but they, would, you, would it be fair to say they both had an equal um, effect on your life in different ways? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I thank God I had two strong parents, that, both of them. Neither, you know, usually you hear these stories and they say, oh, I love my mother was this, my father was weak, this, or vice versa. And I'm glad to say that they were both powerhouses, both uh, independent. They were so strong that they couldn't stay together. In fact, it was a terribly difficult divorce for them. It was wrenching. And for me, who was completely innocent, didn't know what, thought they were a happy family at 16 years old. It was, I was, my world was turn, torn apart in a phone call. And uh, there's a wonderful scene when, in the phone booth there, with the, and the headmaster wants to see me and to tell me this information. I don't want to hear it from him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it, I go into all the reasons for the divorce. I give my mother's side of it, my father's side of it. It's an interesting story where both partners end up betraying each other. In other words, usually it's one, the man betrays the woman, the woman betrays the man, one of those stories. No, it was both of them. And I think it's a fascinating why that happens. So telling that is important because it sets me up as to what kind of character I have. And frankly, only by writing a book do you start to realize what kind of character. I didn't realize how split I was between mom and dad. Yeah. Never realized it until I wrote the book. Uh, which is, in other words, yeah, there is a fundamental doubleness in me. Double-minded is the way Homer put it in Odysseus's story. Double-minded. Well, you talk I, about I, you, you talk about Odysseus, um, because there was trauma there to the extent that um, you, you, this extraordinary. You call them scenes uh, and their pa their passages in your book, because you, because you're a director. I know you're a writer as well, but you talk talk about them as scenes, which I think is so cool. Uh, but uh, this scene, then let's talk about that. Uh, this scene in your book where you go and buy a cooked lamb and you sort of offer it up Chuck. as some kind of uh, uh, morally justifiable sacrifice to get rid of demons, to exercise, trauma. What was going on there? You got it. You're funny. The things you point to, it's funny the anecdotes people choose. Uh, in other words, it hits something in you, I guess, something similar. Of course. Yeah. I was desperate uh, at the end of my rope. And I believed in the in the I believed in the gods. I, I have that pagan side of me. I never got rid of it. Maybe it's from the Mediterranean. My mother, who was a naughty Catholic, <laughs> but uh, uh, and my father was a disbelieving Jew. So you he know, was, he was pretty no, he was pretty naughty too, Oliver. Yeah, oh, he was very naughty, and and I so I was raised modest Episcopalian. You know, the 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 compromise, the great American compromise. <laughs> But uh, mom, you see, my father was a writer. My mom was a, a socialite, a party girl. So in a way, you know, as the writer, I, I'm in, inward. I stay in. I, I, I'm alone. It's a, a strong ethic of work, uh, law, order, my father's world, rationale. And my mother was wild. Uh, and as a director, you have to go wild in a sense because you have to deal with so many people, as you know. It's just so crowded, so pressured. You're on constant parade. You're with people all day long. So by the time a film is finished, uh, let's say 58 days, whatever it is, 40 days, by the time it's over, man, I just want to go quietly back into the editing room and be a writer again, which is what editing turns out to be. I talk about how editing is like rewriting. 
and the plasticity of film, the flexibility of film, you can change anything. But that's where, that's where a split kind of, how can you be a writer and a director? It's not that easy. I, I want to say it's a strange <laughs> mix. It's a strange mix. But I feel that some people say I'm a better director than a writer, and some people say a better writer than a director. But, uh, you know, it's just the balance is what's tough you, to keep that balance. So the writer and, in you was maybe your dad and the director was maybe your mum, maybe. That's what that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Okay, you also say I enjoy I enjoy both roles. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. I enjoy both roles. I'm part dad, part mom. Sometimes they conflate. Sometimes they conflict. But it's all the fun of the fair, right? You say in the book uh, that <laughs> that Hollywood really didn't know what to do with you. Did it? Did Hollywood ever figure that out? Do you think? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, I I, I was I was a strange duck. I mean, I, I never would, would I never worked for the money. And I'd always choose the projects I wanted to do. So they, I guess, you know, people don't understand sometimes what your mind is like and they don't want to know, but it's all about money in the end and how much money your movie makes. And, uh, you know, by those rules, I did okay. I did okay. I made it through the last <laughs> film. Was, yeah, I did. The last film, I what, 30 some years. And the last film, Snowden, was financed essentially by uh, France, Germany, and uh, some from the U.S., but very little. In other words, was independently distributed in the U.S., uh, Snowden, 2016. And, you know, I've done my mostly documentaries the last few years. I've done about nine of them now. But your, your, your films were always very documentarial anyway, weren't they? Yes, but I enjoy doing pure documentary because, well, it's a different, it's not as taxing for me. You don't, have to, you don't have to write it, do you, really? That's right. I mean, well, you do you do some adaptation, but uh, no, the uh, writing and directing is is a is a, soaks your energy. I mean, I've made twenty movies. You know, I don't know. If I need to make more. I think people know what I had to say. All right. Um, can I just take you back to um, the night the night of the Academy Award for Best Director for um, for Platoon? Okay. Yeah. You say here it's the penultimate paragraph in your book. I'd been chasing the light. The title of your book. I'd been chasing the light a long time now. I'd felt its power. I was now forty years old, proverbially at the halfway point. It had been a remarkable two-film journey from the bottom back to the top of the Hollywood mountain. With Salvador, I'd slung the stone hard and far, and it had given me a foothold. And with Platoon, I'd managed to crest into the light. Money. Fame, glory, and honor. It was all there at the same time. And space. I had to move now. I'd been waiting too many years to make films. Time had wings. I wanted to make one after the other in a race against time. I suppose, really, a race against myself in a hall of mirrors of my own making. First of all, what a wonderful passage. Second of all, um, you say in that passage, you, were, you are proverbially, at the time, the halfway point of your life. Well, you're 74, so proverbially, you're six years away from, from checking out. So uh, what do you say now? You're very clever, Mr. Evans. Uh, what do I say? I say uh, it was a glorious moment in time. I mean, I could not share it. I just feel it. And I can always think about it. And you have to understand, it was just, I knew it. I wasn't stupid. I'd been through failure before. I'd had success. I'd had another in, with Midnight Express, but then I slumped. And I, in other words, I knew the stakes. And I just said to myself, this is very special, Oliver. You should really enjoy it because it will never be quite like this again. And uh, that's where it ends. I mean, the, the, dream, the dream that I had worked all my life for it was achieved. Uh, it's, the book starts when I'm 30. It winds back in time. It goes up back and it ends up at 40.
uh, the dream is finally achieved. At 30, I was broke, depressed, out of, you know, no skills. Where was I going in my life? And what happened at 30 when my grandmother died, it's a very moving scene, I think, for me. My grandmother talks to me when she's dead, in a way. It's a scene of apocryphy uh, where she's sharing an oracle. And uh, it really sets me up to really change my life at 30, and I do. And things happen. <laughs> Uh, so it's about failure very much. So since we said in the beginning and coming back from it, coming back from it and ha to take a risk at 39 that I did on Salvador and go to a country where to try to make a film in this country with death squads and crazy military people. It was so nuts, so desperate, desperate. We couldn't do it in the end in Salvador. We had to go to Mexico, but it shows you that I was, it goes from up and down. It goes from extremes to extremes. And that's why I think of my life now. I've settled down to some degree, but still, it's pretty rocky out there. So real success, real success is mostly about failure. <laughs> I, you can learn from failure, put it that way. Some people don't. Some people become bitter and they give up. They lose their voice or they lose their conscience or they want to make a compromise with somehow I want to write something commercial. You know, you do all these things to yourself. You have to be very careful at that point. You have to, I kept to, to a degree writing what I really believed in. Uh, and I, I stayed interested in the world. I, and so, because if you're, I think if you're interested, you, 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 you reflect that interest to other people yeah. and it comes across. So it was always chasing the light. You know, that was the problem too, because in movies you need the light to work. And, you, and when you run out of light, it's the end of the day, you're rushing to get those last couple of shots, yeah. right? You, and you just have to decide at that point, what do I really need? Not, not what do I want, but what do I really, really need to make this scene complete? I can't come back tomorrow. The light's gone. I can't hire artificial lights. We don't have any money for it and so forth and so on. Decisions. But chasing the light has another, has another meaning too in the sense that I've always been, I feel chasing the rabbit. No, no, Alice in Wonderland hole, you know, getting bigger or getting smaller. And... Always in a hurry, always in a hurry. And I think that's what I was trying to deal with. It's at the end of this book, uh, do we need to chase the light anymore? As you know, I kept working very hard. I, I did 10, I said I wanted to make films fast. I did 10 films in 10 years. That's unbelievable. 10 big films in 10 years, one after the other. Yeah. It was a fact, I mean, it was no time to think. It was just go do it while you have the chance. It may not come around again. Yeah, well, that's what a gun at the back of your head will do to you. Yeah. So, but now the question is, what, am I? Uh, uh, have I captured the light, or will I ever? Well, do you have to ever? Because the the Buddhist in you know the Buddhist in anyone, and you talk about that as well. Uh, it's it's not about whether you do or whether you don't. It's whether you are, you know, whether yeah. you're on that journey. I suppose. God Almighty, what a journey! <laughs> <laughs> He's still on it, by the way. <laughs> a journey of of uh, a journey of of mystery. <laughs> Yeah. Pure mystery. Okay, before you go, all and thanks so much for this. Um, notwithstanding, well, thank you, Chris. One more, one more question. Yeah. Oh. Uh, not yeah. with, notwithstanding budget casting or resources, okay, uh, or energy, in fact, uh, what is the most useful film Oliver Stone could make today? Uh, I'm happening. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing a documentary, and you're going to probably say, "Oh no." But I'm doing my documentary, this, this last one I'm finishing it for this year, is about nuclear energy. 
which is an amazing subject when you get into it and how powerful it can be and helpful. And it's just, uh, it's based on this book I bought. And I just think it's important information to get share with the world. I don't know if I have that, maybe I have that do-good quality in me that I, it's my, my missionary doctor side. But I feel like the world has to know what, what, what I've learned about it, what other people have said. I mean, it's, this is factual. I want to share that. That's as important a contribution as I could make to humanity because it, could, it does contribute to clean energy. So there I go. Okay. Okay. I got, I, you wanted to hear, oh, I'm doing a juicy, sexy. Uh, no, no. Uh, I didn't say that. I said, what, what is the most Clinton useful? Parents, you know, kind I, of no, I said, yeah. what is the most useful film you could make? And, and as Scorsese said to you in film school, make it personal and you're keeping it yeah. personal. I am. I am because I, I think it matters. So that's all I can do. I don't have any plans for uh, fiction. All right. Well, it's fantastic. But uh, will I, when I do, I'll tell you. Well, Nick tell Oliver, you it's fantastic to talk to you, and thanks for hanging on because I know these uh, th these days of interviews. I mean, I know you no, write. It's fine. You write the book, Chris. You kept me. You woke me up right away. You're great. Okay. You're a very nice host and a very thoughtful, interested one. Okay, thank you, Oliver Stone. Goodbye. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. What a guy, what a tale. Oliver Stone's memoir, Chasing the Light, is out now. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Best of the Breakfast Show podcast with Sky from Virgin Radio. Ta-da.